letter to the Colossians, chapter 1, verses 15 to 23. The Apostle Paul writes, he says, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things. And in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you, who were once alienated and hostile in mind, Doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that, which, that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Hallelujah. Let's uh, open in prayer. Father, Lord, we give you thanks and praise for this day. Lord, we thank you for calling us out of sleep and into worship this morning. Thank you, Lord, for the worship that we have already experienced today. Lord, we thank you for the liturgy and the music. We thank you, Lord, for your word. We thank you for Christ and what he has done and who he is. And so, Lord, as we Consider your word today, Lord, we pray that you would open our minds and our hearts and our ears to hear and to believe and to understand. And we pray these things in your name, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, last week when we began this letter, Paul set the stage for us uh, by using a framework. Uh, he, used this, he uses a framework throughout this letter of orthodoxy, so right belief about God, right, the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, and right belief about the gospel. But also he uses the framework of orthopraxy, so right practice of the faith, or or a proper living out of right belief. But today's text, which is both a hymn to Christ as well as a early confession of faith, this text is all about orthodoxy. So as we start to dig in here, consider briefly just this passage and we're going to do this all morning. Consider this in light of that weird, blended, Gnostic slash Judaizer slash weird Eastern mysticism heresy that was trying to take root in Colossae. We talked about that some last week. Because remember, this heresy, it was teaching, especially the Gnostic part of it, was teaching that the flesh didn't matter, right? that, that the body doesn't matter. Creation is evil. Furthermore, it, they were teaching that only they had the right secret knowledge for salvation. And... Salvation only came through their particular philosophy and their ascetic rituals. And so in Colossians 1.6 last week, we, Paul proclaims that the gospel is the linchpin of how 
we define and frame right belief in who God is and the work that has been done in the Lord Jesus. And then he ended last week in verses 9 through 14 by telling us that it is the work and will of God and God alone who has transferred us from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of his son in whom we have redemption and the forgiveness of sins. And then we come to this text. He tells us all of that. And then we come here and he writes this. He, Christ Jesus, he is the image of the invisible God. Christ is the firstborn of all creation. For by Christ, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through Christ and for Christ. And Christ is before all things, and in Christ all things hold together. And Christ is the head of the body, the church. Christ is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything Christ might be preeminent. And in Christ all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through Christ to reconcile to himself all things, whether in heaven or on earth or in heaven, making peace through the blood of his cross. In just six verses, Paul throws down a major gauntlet of orthodoxy that combats any teaching that would deny the necessity of the physical body of Christ or deny the necessity of the physical death of Christ or the necessity of his physical resurrection. And so what Paul does here is he calls the Colossian church and us to to a remembrance of their original profession of faith in the orthodox understanding of who Christ Jesus is and what has been accomplished in the gospel of Jesus. And we'll see this calling back to an orthodox understanding of the faith running as a thread throughout this entire text for today. And notice first, just here in the very first sentence that's in your bulletin, Paul uses a few very heavyweight terms. He says first that Christ is the image of the invisible God. Now, for those that have read any part of the New Testament, this is not anything brand new, right? This is not going to be something that's going to give you a little whiplash because... Just even in John's gospel, right, in his, in his prologue, he tells us that the word, of fle- the word of God became flesh and dwelled among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. But consider how Christ, being the image of the invisible God, aids us in our orthodox understanding of who the Lord Jesus is. When Paul writes that Christ is the image, I went to double-check, so I know I'm not... I know I'm not pronouncing this wrong. In the Greek, he uses a word that I'm not transliterating. This is exactly how it sounds in Greek and how it sounds in English. He uses the word icon when he pronounces that Christ is the image. He is the icon of the invisible God. So simply defined in a religious context, and especially for our Eastern Orthodox friends, icons are religious works of art. And they're religious works of art that are windows into the thing, into the things they represent. They are windows into the image that they represent. So when you look at an icon of, say, the Ascension of Christ, like I brought one of mine from home right? because it's beautiful. This was made in Russia. I bought this in Alaska. I will leave it up here for you to look at after worship today. This is the Ascension of Christ. It's a Russian Orthodox icon. So when you look at this, if you use icons, what you're looking at, you're gazing into heaven and seeing that moment in time. Icons can be very beautiful works of art. I know a few of us in here have some. And many Christians use them as devotional aids. They don't worship the icons. They use them as aids for devotion. But Christ is different than a painted picture on a piece of wood. right? Because when Paul uses the word icon here, Christ is not just representative of the divine. He is the divine. 
He is the true icon of God. Gregory of Nazianzus writes here and he says, An ordinary image is a motionless copy of a moving being. But Christ, in Christ, we have a living image of a living being who is indistinguishable from God. And so what Paul is stressing here for us is the two natures of Christ, really. He's stressing for us his divinity and his, and his humanity. In his divinity, Christ is the true icon because he is of one essence with the Father. But in his humanity, Christ is the true icon because he is the image in which man was created to be and in which man is being sanctified. But Paul also says here that Christ is not just the image, but he's also the firstborn of all creation. And that term, you can see very quickly, can be a concern when we start to discuss orthodoxy. Because that word firstborn has thrown many for a loop for the last 2,000 years. Arius, whose teachings were condemned as heresy by the Council of Nicaea in 325, argued from this passage that if Christ is the firstborn of all creation, then Christ is created and not of the same essence as the Father. But, unlike what Arius was doing, and a group that really has continued through this day with his teaching, we don't need to pull this verse out of the context of which Paul is putting it in. We need to read it in which how Paul meant it, because he continues here. He says, Christ is the firstborn of all creation, because by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or rulers or dominions or authorities, all things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And so what Paul is doing here is reminding us again of Jesus' divinity and his humanity, because in his divinity, Christ is the firstborn of all creation because the Father has created everything through him. And in his humanity, Christ is the firstborn of all creation because he has the authority over all creation. Because he has redeemed the covenant that was given to Adam in the beginning. Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over it. And in both instances, in his divinity and in his humanity, creation is completely subject to the Lord Jesus. So, keeping again the framework of this this orthodoxy, this heresy that's trying to take root in Colossae. The Gnostics here taught that Christ was simply one of God's many mediators. But Paul states plainly here that with these two qualifying factors, his divinity and his humanity, Christ is not just one mediator between God and creation. He is the only mediator between God and creation. But there's another point in this one verse that we need to note before moving on. Because while it is a major point to stress the essence of Christ, we do not need to miss the goal of why Paul is making this point to begin with. Especially as we grapple with an orthodox view of who Jesus is. The chief goal is that in the person of Christ Jesus, God has been made fully known. He has been made fully manifest in the person of Christ. Calvin writes here and he says, Christ is called the image of God on this particular ground, that he makes God visible to us. And the sum of it is this, that God is invisible, and not only is he invisible to the eyes, but he is also invisible to the understandings of mankind. But God is revealed to us in Christ alone, so that we may behold him as in a mirror, as in an icon. For in Christ, God shows us his righteousness. So let's approach this through our framework of orthodoxy here. 
How does having this right kind of understanding of the person of Christ aid us in our orthodoxy? Because remember, this blended heresy that's being peddled in Colossae, it's denying the bodily incarnation. It's denying the bodily death, the bodily resurrection of Christ. Plenty of modern heresies today threaten the church's orthodoxy by, in their own way, doing the same thing. They deny the incarnation of Christ. They deny the goodness of creation. I mean, think of modern philosophies even now in our own culture. The body doesn't matter. right? We're not bound by our bodies. Gender is just a social construct, but trust the science at the same time. Creation doesn't matter in modern philosophies, but if Christ Jesus has come in a body, if he has lived in a body, if he died in a body and was raised in a body, and if he currently sits at the right hand of God in a physical flesh and blood body, then our God has very intentionally made the way we relate to him incarnational. Our faith is an incarnational faith. And so if Christ is the icon of the invisible God, then we have to consider what that means for us incarnationally. Our incarnational faith is intentionally designed to engage us in our senses. Faith in Christ is tangible. It's real. It's one that can be felt and can be touched. And while it is spiritual, it's not only spiritual. Consider what John says in 1 John 1. This is how he opens his first epistle. He says, That which we have heard, that which we have seen with our eyes, and which we have looked upon and we have touched with our our hands. Christ had and has a literal, physical, flesh and blood body that could be seen and could be touched, and a voice that could be heard. And notice how in this passage alone we can discern tangible evidences of our incarnational faith. Paul tells us, he says, that by Christ and through Christ, all things have been created, both in heaven and on earth, or in the heavens and on earth, both visible and invisible. This was brought up in Sunday school, but this past week, there's a new telescope, if anybody didn't know about this, right? It's a better telescope than Hubble, right? Uh, better because it's a different kind of telescope, and Hubble, frankly, is just antiquated at this point, right? It's, it's old. It's been, it's been working too long, right? Um, it's like that guy in the Green Mile that just says, I'm tired, boss, right? Like, the Hubble is tired. But that being said, this, this Hubble is called the James Webb. Uh, this, this telescope is called the James Webb Telescope. But this past week, they released the first images that we have received, and, they, and, and they're in color. And if you've not looked at them, you need to go out online and look at them. They're, they're absolutely stunning. So, for example, just two of them I'll bring up. And I have them on my phone. If you want to look at them, I'll show you after church because they're great. But, but one image was, of, I believe, of a nebula where Hubble took a picture of this. And there's this light, bright light in the middle, which is obviously a star. But James Webb sees in such a way that we actually have learned now that in the middle of that nebula, there are two stars. It's a binary star. We didn't know that before. There's another area of, of the universe that they took a picture of that they compared to Hubble. And in the article, they said this would be like taking one grain of sand and holding it out at arm's length. So you get an idea of how tiny of a speck of our universe that this is a picture of. And this image from James Webb showed us, in way more detail than Hubble ever could, thousands of galaxies. Not just stars, but stars and galaxies. It's absolutely awe-inspiring. And when we come to this text, 
those images that we were able to look at this week really begin to help us put a text like this into, into at least some kind of perspective for ourselves. And when the Colossians are dealing with this heresy, they really could have used a picture like what we got from James Webb this week because it shows us that our world, our universe, our experience, our lives, our faith, they are all very intentionally designed to be incarnational. For us in the church, we can bring this even closer to home. Let's, let's zero in from the universe and zero back down and come in just even to Christ Community Church because the sacraments themselves are very intentionally designed to be incarnational. They engage our senses through taste and touch, through smell and feel. In baptism, we can feel ourselves being buried with Christ in his death and being raised with Christ in his resurrection as we are covered in the water and as it pours down our body and flows off our bodies as we come out of the water. The coldness of the water reminds us of the coldness of death. And the breath after baptism reminds us of our breath of new life in Christ. In the Eucharist, we... We crush the bread with our teeth, a literal reminder of when Isaiah tells us that Christ was crushed for our iniquities. The dryness of the wine that we use reminds us of the flowing blood of Christ poured out to reconcile us to God. In the incarnation of Christ, God has been made fully known to us. And because of Jesus' incarnation, we are reminded that God has intentionally designed our faith in him to be an incarnational experience. And so when we come to verse 18 then, Paul starts to kind of shift directions a little bit, just slightly. And he stresses for us that Christ is not just the head of creation, but he's also the head of new creation that has been made in him, particularly of the church. Again, he says here, he says that Christ is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that in everything he might be preeminent. And here we have, to, we have to back up for a moment just briefly to this foundation that Paul has already laid in the earlier part of this chapter that we saw last week. Because when speaking of the church herself, Paul is again stressing to us the unity of the gospel that is being proclaimed throughout the world. It's not just one gospel in Colossae and one in Thessalonica and one in Corinth. It's all one gospel. And so in the same way then, coming now to this verse, in the same way that the gospel is a unified message... The church is also unified under the same head. Colossae has Christ for her head as much as Corinth does or Thessalonica does or Christ Community Church does. And so as we consider how this fits within this orthodox framework, note what Paul is telling us about Christ in just this one verse. He says that Christ is the head of the church. And as its head, Christ is both the source of the church's life as well as the Lord over it. Just as all of creation is subject to Christ, so is the church. And just as a body needs a head to live, the church comes from Christ, submits to Christ, and continues to exist because of Christ. And just as Christ has supreme and life-giving authority over creation, where life is temporal, he also has supreme and life-giving authority over the new creation where life is eternal. And as the beginning, he tells us here, he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning. Christ is not only the firstborn of all creation, like we read in verse 15, but he is also, by virtue of his resurrection, the firstborn of the dead. Thereby making him the Lord of the new creation, because in him, new creation has begun. 
And all of these, being the head of the church, being the beginning, the firstborn of the dead, he tells us so that in all things Christ would be preeminent, so that he would be supreme. When it comes to combating false teachings about the person of the Lord Jesus, this point is absolutely necessary. Because an orthodox faith in Christ proclaims that Christ is not just one of many mediators. He is not just one of many ways to God. Christ is unapologetically supreme. He is preeminent. And from his supremacy, Paul tells us, from his preeminence, in that next verse he says, For in Christ the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Remember a few weeks ago, we were in Isaiah 66 in the very first part of that chapter. Paul, uh, the Lord God asked Judah in verse 1, he says, he says what, what's the house that you could build for me? Or where is the place of my rest? And we noted there when we were looking at that, that nothing could contain the fullness of the Godhead. But here, Paul tells us that an orthodox declaration of the Lord Jesus tells us that in him the fullness of the Godhead was pleased to dwell. And so as we explore this, again, keep in mind, keep in mind that heresy that was trying to take root in Colossae. Because we have to be careful with how we interpret what Paul is saying here. Because let's be honest, we could, we could see how this verse, like being the firstborn of all creation, could be easily taken out of context to insinuate that Christ and the Father and the Spirit are the same in the incarnation. This, this heresy in Colossae claimed that Christ was only one of many mediators. We've already made that note. He's only one of many mediators between God and man. Because for them, all spiritual beings that served as God's mediators were described as being full of God. That was just part of their theology. But Paul is more direct in the way he writes this verse, and he points us to an orthodox statement that Christ Jesus is fully God by telling us that Christ Jesus is the fullness of God. In his incarnation, in his resurrection, in his ascension, Christ is the fullness of God who is the head of all creation, both old and new. Ambrose wrote this, he said, he said, the Son so possesses his own glory and the glory of the Father. He, excuse me. The Son so possesses his own glory that the glory of the Father and the Son are one. Christ is not inferior, nor is he lower in Godhead, for the glory is one and the fullness of the Godhead is in Christ. And then in verse 20, as we continue, Paul begins to now build toward his conclusion of an orthodox understanding of salvation that he started last week in verses 12 through 14. He tells us that God by his will, in those verses, he said, God by his will, he has qualified us in Christ to deliver us from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of Christ, Christ who is preeminent, this Christ who is firstborn of creation and of the dead, Christ who is Lord of all, who is the fullness of God. He tells us here in verse 20 that through that Christ, God has reconciled all things to himself, and he has made peace through the blood of the cross of Christ. Paul would write in Romans 3.25 that we read just a moment ago in our liturgy, we are justified by God's great grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood. Theodore of Mopsuestia wrote that Christ reconciled all things by his death and joined things on earth and in heaven for one common purpose. By his dying and rising, he truly made available to all the common promise of resurrection and immortality. 
And this tells us that we cannot be joined. We cannot be joined to God other than through the Son. Not through a secret knowledge revealed and taught to us only by a few. Not through keeping specific ascetic practices or rituals. We are only qualified by God and reconciled to God by Christ and by Christ alone. And so notice how this orthodox grasp of the preeminence of Christ shapes our orthodox understanding of how we are reconciled to God. Paul goes on in the next few verses that are there at the end of your passage in the bulletin. In verse 21, he says, what he does here is he writes, he says, And you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. Just stopping there. I know that's not the end of a thought, but it is the end of that verse. What Paul does is he, he, he does something similar to what the Lord did back in Isaiah 66. He, he moves us from really a, a macro understanding of the work of Christ on a cosmic scale to a micro understanding of the work of Christ on a personal scale. And so macro, verses 15 through 20, Christ is preeminent. He is the fullness of God. Through Christ, God has reconciled all things to himself, both in heaven and on earth, by the blood of the cross of Christ. But then macro, he says, but you, church, you Colossians, you Christ community church, you, you were once alienated from God. You were once hostile toward God in your mind. You were once, at one time, you rejected God by your sinful deeds. You once did all of these things that were markers of someone who was part of the kingdom of darkness. But now, verse 22, now you who were once in the kingdom of darkness, God has now reconciled you to himself in the incarnation, in the flesh of Christ, by the death of Christ. He even says so explicitly. That's just not my notes. He says, You who were once alienated, hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, God has now reconciled in Christ's body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If the gospel is to be the linchpin to our whole approach of orthodoxy and orthopraxy, like we saw last week in Colossians 1.6, then the key to an orthodox understanding of the gospel is the bodily incarnation of Christ. We cannot ever overemphasize the necessity of the incarnation or this point that it is only by the bodily death of Christ that we are reconciled to God. That is something we can never overemphasize. And pay close attention to how this aids us as we deal with a heresy or as we deal with false teachers or even how the Colossians did. Because for them, again, a mediator between God and man was simply a spirit because the flesh is evil. Flesh could not flesh was corruptible for this heresy that was being peddled here. Flesh, the flesh was bad. Creation equals bad. But a non-physical being cannot die. A spirit cannot shed blood. And the letter to the Hebrews is very clear on this point. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Orthodoxy requires the incarnation. John would write in 1 John 1, 4, uh, 1 John 4, he would say that. We can know who has the Spirit of God. He said every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. But every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. Because that, John says, that is the spirit of the Antichrist. Christ Jesus took on flesh to become sin. He who knew no sin became sin for us, Paul tells the Corinthians. Hebrews tells us that Christ has appeared once for all to put away sins by the sacrificing of himself... And that we are sanctified by the offering of the body of Christ. We are united 
with Christ in his death, Paul tells us in Romans 6. And if we have been united with him in a death like his, then we will certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. The flesh and blood body of Christ matters for orthodoxy. Because as Paul tells us in this verse, in Jesus' bodily death, he presents us holy and blameless and above reproach before God. And so now we have to circle back again to the goal of the incarnation, like we saw back in verse 15. Not only was the goal of the incarnation to make God fully known, but even more so the goal of the incarnation is our reconciliation through the bodily death of Christ so that we might have a right standing before God, that we might be holy and blameless and above reproach. This is why we confess the creed every week and why we celebrate the Eucharist every week. Because our faith is incarnational. And we can never overemphasize the necessity of the incarnation of Christ. Because an orthodox understanding of the gospel proclaims that without the incarnation, reconciliation is impossible. And so finally note here in this last verse, it starts with the word if there. That annoying big little word if. Paul writes this. Again, you, you were once hostile You were alienated. You were doing evil deeds. Christ has reconciled in his body of flesh you toward God by his death. If, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. That With that annoying little word, if, we now have to wrestle with that pesky, issue of the difficult balance between God's sovereignty and human responsibility. It's frustrating, and it's always hard to understand because we have to ask a few questions, right? Is God completely sovereign in salvation? Yes, absolutely. Is God completely sovereign in who is saved? Absolutely. Scripture attests to this. But is man responsible to how he responds to the orthodox gospel of Christ? Yes. And furthermore, based on this verse, Is man responsible for how he lives in the orthodox knowledge of Christ? Yes. And while we can lean on the sovereignty of God for perseverance in the faith, and we should, Paul clearly tells us here in this verse that we are also responsible to persevere in the faith. And this is not the only time that Paul has suggested this. He doesn't just throw it out here and then leave it and not suggest it again. Over in Philippians, he does it twice. He writes in Philippians 2.12, he says, you need to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. And then he puts it on himself in the next chapter. In chapter 3, verse 14, he says, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. So while I do not think in any way whatsoever that Paul is suggesting a loss of salvation, I do think his intention here is clear for both the Colossians and for us that perseverance in the faith is essential. And notice some, just a few of the words he uses here. First, he, he, says, he says, indeed. He says, if indeed you continue in the faith. I think with this word, he, he expresses his confidence that the Colossians will continue. So the condition of the if is there. But I think he's confident that they will persevere. Because they already have been persevering, as we read earlier in this chapter. But also notice, though, how he points them again to the unified message of the gospel that they had believed in and they had proclaimed because it had been proclaimed. He says, if you indeed continue in the faith, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which is proclaimed in all creation. 
He says perseverance, perseverance in the unified Orthodox gospel is essential. Because he says here, if one, if someone was to turn away from the Orthodox gospel and place their hope in a separate teaching, then that person has not been reconciled to God by the bodily death of Christ. Doing show shows that someone is not stable or steadfast. They're not persevering. Calvin writes here, he says, faith, faith is not a mere opinion, he says. Faith is not an opinion which is shaken by various movements. No, faith has a firm steadfastness which can withstand all the machinations of hell. So here is our challenge in this verse and our application as we prepare to come to the table this morning. Today, we have heard the orthodox gospel of Jesus from the Apostle Paul. Christ is preeminent. He became flesh for our sake. Christ has reconciled us to God by the blood of his cross, in his bodily death, and in his bodily resurrection. So the challenge here is this. Have you confessed faith in the orthodox gospel of Jesus Christ? And if so, are you continuing to confess that faith? Are you remaining stable and steadfast and not shifting your hope from the unified orthodox gospel? If so, then rejoice and come to the table and make great thanks incarnationally for the work that God has done for us in Christ on our behalf. But if not, then the call is simple. Repent and be transferred from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of Christ. Christ in whom we have redemption the forgiveness of sins. May God bless the teaching of his word.